Welcome to the Thrive at 20 podcast, where we're celebrating 20 years of Thrive Partnership Group by sitting down with leaders who have helped shape the legacy of the organization. Here's founder Rob Seguin in conversation with one of those leaders today. So this is the Thrive at 20 podcast series here in September of 2023 is our 20th business anniversary of Thrive Partnership Group. So we're honored and excited to bring to our listeners a series of great leaders that we think are exemplary in terms of the way that they live and the way that they work. And I guess you use the corny expression thriving, uh, but it really comes to mind, especially with our first guest. We're very pleased to be joined by Todd Wood. Uh, Todd, uh, in his current gig, and you know, like most of our guests, gig things can be fluid, <laughs> especially in this economy with all the things that are happening, especially in life sciences, but currently advisory board member with UC Irvine. And most recently, uh, got quite a bit of profile as the chief commercial officer at Dermtech, which is an interesting technology company that Todd will tell us more about on the West Coast in the U.S., bringing some, I would say, groundbreaking diagnostic capability to skin cancer. And uh, that affects some folks in my family. So thank you, Todd, for doing that. Thanks to your organization, too. And Todd, I think we go back a long way. I want to say it's, I'm guessing, but it's got to be 25 years. Does that seem about right to you? Yes, if not more. Back to uh, 1994. Well, then that's close to 30. Oh, my God. Yes. Did you just say that out loud? Yes. <laughs> now, if I remember correctly, you were really just getting started in your life science career. And if I remember this correctly, you were in Michigan and I was working in a practice management role supporting the sales organization for Allergan. And I kept hearing about this young rep who was kicking ass in Michigan. It was part of my geography. So if I'm not mistaken, your boss at the time was Jay Newman. And Jay encouraged me to make a flight over to Detroit from Buffalo which normally was a nice quick flight, except I seem to recall it was very bumpy and cold <laughs> when we first met. Um, does that sound about right to you? It, it does. However, um, when I was thinking through when we actually met, it might have occurred about a year before then, a year or two before then. Um, when I joined the organization, I was in this optometry division and you were in, I believe, a marketing role of some sort and responsible yes, in tool. some degree yeah. for the launch of the product that we were launching in the contact lens solution space. That's right. That is that yeah. is right. Good memories. So I met you then from afar, just as the product manager. And when you're the product manager at a company like that that's growing and that's the hot new product, you're you're the superstar, right? So I got to meet you and uh, just observe you from afar. So we met each other, but we really didn't work closely to each other or with each other until um, he came out to see me in Michigan. That's right. Yeah, those were interesting times at Allergan. Um, it was probably choppy, to say the least. I remember when we moved down to California with two kids that were under the age of three. I took that assignment product management on the OTC side. You guys were launching a lens care product called Complete, and we had launched it in Canada. I think about a year before, it took the market by storm. It was just the right product at the right time. And we jumped to like first place share after one year. And so I was excited and it was really cool to get an opportunity to work in head office. 
and I got there probably at the worst time. <laughs> the, the shit was hitting the fan and almost every business was underwater, not performing. Um, it was a mess. And I know the stock price had bumped along at like 20 bucks a unit for two or three years. It wasn't moving. We were worried that the company was going to be bought. There was people coming into the building every week, sitting in the audit office, which was the due diligence office. And it was always either J&J or it was Merck or it was... <laughs> It seemed like a, a new company in there every, every week kicking the tires on Allergan. And we also had what we called Dark Thursdays. So when you came off the elevator, there was this place where they put announcements. Uh, they pinned up announcements every Thursday. And Dark Thursdays were because when you went up there, there was always so-and-so or this department being laid off or resized all the HR lingo. And uh, yeah, what a shitstorm to walk into, you know, moving my family down there and it wasn't a good time for the business. And then I think you remember, it was about a year later that a guy named Mike Ball joined out again. That's uh, correct. Came, came over from, I want to say, Syntex Canada, maybe through Roche US. But um, he came in and what a turnaround he, he pulled off. I think it was two years later, the stock had doubled and it kept soaring. He made a lot of people a lot of money. And the best part about that journey was I got to sit right across the hall from him. And we used to play hockey on Tuesday nights, a couple of Canucks down in California. So I used to get a little bit more visibility of what was really going on. He tried to be careful to separate work from personal, but I couldn't help admiring what he was doing. I used to ask him a lot of questions, especially if we were having a pop after a hockey game. But uh, I know you're a big fan of Mike's. Did you get the same impression that he was the right guy at the right time? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I was, you know, in my first role there, uh, quite junior, and I didn't get the exposure that you did to the downtimes. Um, I sensed it a little bit at some of the meetings we were at, but I was happy to be there because I was just looking at all the good that I was experiencing in the organization. And I just didn't have the baggage of the the past. And then when Mike came on the scene, he was just a, a, a tremendous leader. Um, and a commanding leader uh, with the sales organization and really invested in the sales organization. And I remember, and I stole this from him, and I've used it later in life at other meetings where he said this organization is going to be comprised of two things, people that sell stuff and people that make stuff. And if you don't fit into one of those two items, then there's probably not a place for you. And <laughs> yeah. that's what we did from then on. We built products or acquired products and sold products. And my experience has been just living in a commercial engine and just saw what it looks like where everybody in the organization is commercial. And yeah, and when you look you at your, your past, we thought you you really took to heart everything that Mike was trying to teach us because you know you had a very successful run with Allergan all the way through the sales and marketing organization. But I, I would say your long suit from what I see in the market, what I've watched with the people around you it is the extraordinary ability to connect with people at the heart level. And I think you have that same, whether you learned it from guys like Mike or whether you were born with it, or maybe a combination of two, but that I think is what defines your brand as a leader. Would you agree with that? Have you had that feedback from other folks? I agree. Um, matter of fact, when I take a strengths finder test of some sort, um, what normally comes up normally when you do those tests, there's five key strengths or something like that that come up. And yeah. one of those five is always relator. 
Yeah. So it's a combination of relator and command. So connect with people and then you can command them in the direction you want, but they want to do it because you've connected with them versus you telling them to do it. So let me, let's go back to the things that you believe, Todd, formed the man you are today, because, you know, you, we would all hope that at some point in our careers, people would look at us as a maybe a bastion of wisdom or we have something to bring back. And I, I know that is the case for you. So many people that we know in common hold you in such high regard. And that's one of the things they say about you is that the wisdom that comes from you is extraordinary. So where did that all come from? Where did that start? Uh, tell us a little bit about how you grew up, where you grew up, maybe some of the key influences you had through your academic and athletic career and then business. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it's interesting going back to where I grew up and some of the influences, because I, I don't think I can pin it on any one thing to answer the question, like what really molded me. Yeah. Um, I think it's a collection of many influences, and then you just put them together and make your own brand. I mean, I used to say that when I was coaching young sales reps or new sales reps, um, to just spend a lot of time gathering styles and uh, methods from other people, but then incorporate and make it your own because you just don't want to be somebody else. So you have yeah. to be authentically yourself. So, you know, I grew up, you know, near where you're from uh, in Michigan, right? So we're kind of right there, um, you know, next to the Canadians and suburbia life, you know, just, you know, wedged in a suburb, wedged in between a small city and that's on one side of the town. On the other side of the town was cornfields for days. Mm -hmm. So it's just a, a rural, simple community, a blue collar community. And, you know, there's a strong work ethic there. Um, and people just didn't know what they had and what they didn't have. And people were relatively happy. Football was a large part of my life growing up. Um, uh, it consumed a lot of my life. I loved it. I went on and played at the college level. And there I had some influences on some coaches. And again, I think during the time, I just didn't realize what was happening. But then when I look back on it, I just had some opportunity to be around people that are tremendously successful today. And I think I've taken a lot from them. Uh, you know, I played football under Brian Kelly, uh, who, if you're a football fan and have followed college football, he's been tremendously successful. He went on and uh, broke Lou Holtz's record for the most wins at Notre Dame. And now he's the head coach for LSU. Uh, Todd Monken, who is the offensive coordinator with Georgia, was also part of that team. And I think that team was just a, a collection of a lot of people that uh, did things that they felt were right. Um, when I hear Brian Kelly speak today, there's a quote he often says is, um, he was, this is when he just went to Notre Dame and he was getting interviewed and the journalists asked him, you know, what people are learning about him. And he said, they're learning how to prepare to practice. Huh. And that was interesting. When I heard that, I turned to my wife and I said, that's it. That's why Notre Dame's going to get back on the map right there. And I didn't really realize it, but that was kind of just rounded into me the way we went about practice. You prepared practice, well, it's funny you practice should say, was the game yeah it's funny you should remark that way Todd about things that shape and influence you because most people I talk to about this fall into the camp that you just described 
that they may not have had, you know, any particularly strong influences, although I'm sure there are one or two that stand out through your business and sports careers, like Mr. Kelly and maybe Sheldon Kavansky and others that affect this business-wise or Mike Ball. But you look back and you realize how much of an effect uh, things had on you, whether it's the way your parents brought you up or, like you say, the the values you got from being in a smaller community that was blue collar and you learned independence and, you know, things were uh, pull, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Nobody was handing you any opportunities. I think that those things, when you look back, you realize how significant they were. Was there anybody in your academic life or football life that really stands out to you other than the folks you've already mentioned? Um, there are, you know, there's, you know, many people in the football life, you know, the camaraderie of uh, my teammates. Yeah. Um, you know, they, I still stay in touch with uh, members of the guys I went to school with. Um, as the world gets smaller, as I get older, I ended up working with uh, some of the people from uh, the class below me and they shape you as well. And when I look at everyone that I played with, um, they're all uber successful, which is pretty impressive, right? Yeah. There's doctors, there's lawyers, there's executives, there's entrepreneurs that all came out of that group. So there's something that we were all experiencing together. And then we all applied it separately in life as our lives have gone in different directions. But when we connect, it's, it's, it's quite impressive. Well, that's um, a great expression, right? I think that's the ultimate measure of a leader is not what he or she has accomplished, but it's the harvest of the people that went through their influence and what happened to them. Did they create more leaders? Yeah. And it right. looks like that football program that you got to participate in after high school was exactly that. It was a, like a little hotbed of shaping talent that went on to other things. Not everybody stayed in the football room by the sounds of it, but went on to some great stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. I would agree. And oftentimes I, I look at that for myself today. Um, I've hired, geez, hundreds of people over the years and and developed, uh, uh, you know, tens to 100 people into roles of higher responsibility. And it's it's nice to just see where they're at now in their careers. It's It's fantastic. So let's unpack that a little bit, because I know our listeners are always keen to pick up the nuggets that you picked up along the way. And I want to go at two things that you just mentioned there. One is hiring and the other is developing. So with the hundreds of people that you've hired in your 30 plus year career, especially in an area as dynamic as life science, especially with all the senior responsibility you had and the visibility that you had with those roles, high impact, the sales organization, to Mike Ball's point, we're feeding the rest of the organization. So there was no shortage of attention and accountability. What did you learn from being in that high pressure results environment about hiring talent? What what did you learn to look more for? And maybe what did you learn to look less for as you went along the curve? Yeah, it's, it's a good question there. And this is a classic case of, I think it was an instinct I had, but I didn't know what to call it. And someone else branded it later. It's uh, Marcus Buckingham and first break all the rules um, where he states hire on talent and then you can develop the skill. And hmm. 
I think I had a track record of that. Like don't hire on the skills because you can always teach a skill, but there are certain talents that you're going to need. That's the hard wiring for the role. And I did a lot of that um, through the interviewing process, looking for ways to just connect with someone to see if they were wired the way I needed them to be wired to reach the excellence that you needed in the role. Now you're going to miss, you hire enough people you miss. You think you you nailed it and um, and you miss on it. But I think every good leader is has to miss. Um, so you learn from it yeah. um, and you know what, you know, the wrong talent looks like in your organization. It helps you vet that out in the interviewing process uh, as time goes on. So I, I really looked, you know, and I'd spend some time just looking for the talent I need on the team for certain roles and really focus on that. And skills are great, uh, but they can always be taught if they have the acumen to learn it. And then yeah. before you lead hiring and transition to develop, um, you're always hiring. And I don't mean that by always hiring different people. You're always rehiring the person you just hired. Um, and I think that's how you create a sticky culture that you're constantly re-recruiting them to want to work for you or your team or your vision or whatever you have sold them on. Um, and I think that that goes hand in hand with developing them. Um, on the development side, people need to own that. And I think that's one of the talents that I would look for in people that they want to develop themselves. And then I would act as a facilitator for that. And I would engage a lot to develop them, but over 50% needs to come from them. And then I'll facilitate it with the 40% and try to mold it and open doors for them. So that's that's my approach to hiring and developing. Yeah, I really like both of those takeaways because actually I see that across industries, especially on that development comment where, you know, we, when we opened our practice, um, we were serving a lot of different sectors, but a lot of activity in the life science sector and life science sector. I said to somebody today that I was in a meeting with, she asked me, do you guys work in more than life sciences? And if so, which industries and what, how are they different? And I said, well, you know, we have, we have a couple of clients that are in manufacturing. Uh, one's a jam company, in Northern Ontario. Another one is a, a copy company. A third one does uh, electronic, large volume, small margin. And I said, the one thing I admire, and I think we can all learn from those businesses that have thinner margins, is they just can't make mistakes. They can make them once, perhaps, but not twice. And one of the things that I learned very quickly when we were involved, as we still are today a little bit, in leadership development and those sorts of offerings was you can lead a horse to water. (laughs) You know that old expression. Mm -hmm. And I remember asking leaders, you know, for you know, the, the list of folks that they want to invest in. And I used to just run with the list that they gave us and then off we would go. And now we learned to say, well, okay, tell us who you want to invest in and why they want to be developed. Because if they don't have a good answer to that question, it's by far the most important predictor of whether you're going to get return on that development investment or not uh, is do they have the fire in their belly? And to your expression, do they own their own journey? Are they initiating are they the ones that are pushing you to mold them and help build the career or the brand that they want to build? If you have to push and prod and suggest and go back and follow up and hold them accountable to things you've asked them to do or suggested that they do for their own development, it's 
as the Brits would say, a bloody big waste of time. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And then there's also something about development. I don't know if this is just a function of the, the industry that we have been in. But I saw this a lot along the way is development meant doing a project outside of your day-to-day job. And that's good. But in my mind, that's not development. I would look for what are you going to do to really improve where you're at and gain a skill set within the job that you're doing, right? Yeah, and that's where we can learn a lot from. And I bet you borrowed this from your athletic experience, especially with very high-end coaches. I found the best coaches in athletics uh, have to make this an emphasis to be successful because in sports, you know, depending on what position, what sport you're playing, there's a pretty well-defined set of capabilities that allow someone to flourish. You know, you could take, a, let's say, because, you know, I grew up in more baseball than any other sport, but they call some players five-tool. You know, they, they can throw, they can hit, they can run, they can catch, and they can offer a dynamic thinking ability on the field. So they they have it all. But when you sit down with an athlete that is the right candidate for development, whether they're a corporate athlete or playing sports, they're very aware of, like, they're, they're very keen to point to somebody who does it better than them. They, they, when you ask them, how can you be better? They don't have a general answer. They have a very specific answer. And they almost have a point, almost always have a point of reference. So they work with somebody now, or they worked with someone before, or they're on a team with somebody now. If you go back to sports, they look around the dressing room and go, well, I may be good at A, B, and C, but boy, I wish I was as good as D as that guy. Situational hitting or uh, working on my changeup or whatever the example is. And it's the same thing in business, isn't it? Where the folks that went the furthest along the path that they were on, that we had a chance to work with over the years, that's probably the one thing they haven't done. Very self-aware. Uh, modest in terms of their personal assessment, but the appetite to get better at some of the smallest things that turn out to be for them game changers. And it just never stops. Like they never feel like they've made it. Right. And and, and right. if you look at the hundreds of people that you got a chance to hire, develop and where they've gone with their careers, is that something you see with those folks too, that have had the best run is this almost insatiable appetite to keep working on their game. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what is that? One of the seven habits is to always continue to sharpen the saw. And uh, absolutely. And it's a it's a competitiveness and a desire to keep performing. Right. Like here's a um, a quick little football story. Um, this was a different coach than Brian Kelly. And I remember um, after a big game, uh, the, the Monday afterwards, uh, we would have a little discussion and he would always pick out a freshman or someone that's a red shirt freshman that's new uh, that might've got some play in action and ask them if they're satisfied with that game. And they would always say yes, because they were proud of themselves. And that led to them running during the practice for a few miles <laughs> while everyone else is practicing. Right. Because it's like, yeah, we all celebrated it over the weekend. You're socially satisfied, but you're breaking down the film and you're trying to figure out what you can improve upon. And I think that's just drilled into my head and others that I see that are wired the same way. And it doesn't need to be football. It just needs to be um, something at their craft 
or even in their personal life, right? Like you mentioned, uh, people that are emotionally aware, um, they have that awareness. Maybe you're not aware and someone just calls you out and says, hey, you know, um, I noticed this and you might want to think about that. And do you listen to it and do something about it or do you just ignore it? And I think most successful people or leaders listen to that and they might assess it with someone else and then they figure out what they can do to improve it. Yeah. So, Todd, we wanted to explore a um, couple of things that came up a little bit earlier, especially at the trend of the conversation where both in business and personal lives, you know, they, they always intersect, even though we try not to let them in some cases. But um, on the business side, were you part of a team or a situation or a project or with a particular group where you thought the learning was quite profound and the speed of your development went up to a whole different level? Something like that stand out when you look back now over the 30 or so years that you've had, because it's been a great run for you. Yeah, um, there's two instances I want to share with you, and I think you are part of one of them. Um, and it's definitely where business and my personal life intersected, and that was 9 11. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a regional meeting at um, a regional launch meeting. We're launching a product. We happen to be staying in the Logan Hyatt, Logan Airport Hyatt. Mm. And if we check our history, that's the same hotel that the terrorist stayed in. And so we were running our meeting. We're operating our meeting. And then obviously the towers are hit. Um, Then we we shut down our meeting and everyone uh, gets back to their families and they're calling their families, et cetera, reacting to it the way the rest of the world did. If people paid attention to the FBI delivering their updates to the world, um, there was a little Hyatt podium, right? Uh, that they mm-hmm. were standing behind. And that Hyatt podium was the meeting room that we were in. Wow. So the FBI secured our hotel and we were stuck in that hotel for three to four days. So where this intersected into my personal life was there was a woman there. Her first name's Liana that I met for the first time at that meeting. And uh, years later, she's my wife and we have two girls. So that's where we met because we were stuck um, in that meeting or at the, you know, at that meeting and we didn't know each other. Uh, she joined the company just a little bit before that, but I don't know if I would have even interacted with her at that meeting unless we were kind of stuck in a lobby and people were trying to find their families and the guards down and you just get to know each other. So that obviously changed my life. And I share that story with a lot of people because 9-11 is typically a bad story. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But for me, it's a silver lining because I have two beautiful teenage daughters that are a result of us being in that situation together. Um, then, you know, so, uh, yeah. if, Before you go on to the next one, I can tell you that you're not the first person that I've heard that reference point from. Um, and it sort of makes me think when we reflect back on a such a horrible tragedy like that, that it can help but make you wonder why so many people have those silver lining stories. Like from the darkness, light pours in. And what, is it, what are those pieces of light? And for you to be able to take a piece of light out, like meeting your future wife, 
who then helped you raise two great girls. I mean, that's a powerful thing. Oh, I absolutely knew it. And once everything settled down from 9-11 and I was uh, heading back home, you know, I knew it. Uh, I was living in Cleveland at the time. And at that point, I said, I got to figure out a way to get to California. Because <laughs> she lived in California. You were smitten, time. man. So, you I, yeah. And I actually interviewed for jobs to get to California for that reason. <laughs> um, and 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 got the jobs. Uh, and then the rest is history. So yeah. on the, the work front, though, we broke. And, you know, we told everyone to get on the phone quickly, get with their families. And then the management team went up to a suite where you mentioned Sheldon Kavinsky. He was my mm-hmm. boss at the time and it was his meeting he was running and the management team sat in the suite and all Sheldon said, and I was the junior person on the team and Sheldon said, guys, the decisions we make today are decisions that people are going to know and feel and remember for the rest of their lives. And then he shut up and let us go. And being the junior person on the team, I just watched that team act, right? And as you know, Joe Casper, one of your long-term counterparts, uh, he was a Bostonian. He knew the town, knew it well, and he stands up and says, uh, I know every limo company in town. And then someone else jumped right on that and said, all right, let's secure them. Let's book them up. And so uh, that led to what felt to me like – uh, a campaign had flip charts and phones and everyone's trying to book everything. And what we did was we built a plan to get every one of our employees. And there had to be well over a hundred people at this meeting to get every one of our employees home via limousine. Uh, we didn't want to deal with any other type of transportation. And so we booked every car service we could find and we thought money is no object. Let's get everyone home in a car. And it took us about two, two and a half days that we drove people across country and we just organized the trips so we could logistically get everyone home and get them home safely and get them in a type of transportation like that, that we knew they wouldn't be stranded. You know, I only heard a piece of that story from Sheldon. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, unfortunately, we just lost Sheldon, as you know, who was one of our favorite leaders of all time. But I seem to recall his story on that transportation offer from Joe was he got in one of those limos and he and his administrative assistant were both from Toronto, but because they shut the borders down, they took the limousine to the bridge on Grand Island, New York, near Buffalo, and then walked to the customs and walked across the bridge. And I'm not mistaken, Sheldon's wife, Barbara, picked them up on the other side of the bridge. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> and what's interesting is as you talk to our team over the years, everyone has a story about who they rode with, right? As they were riding through Pennsylvania to Western Indiana, right? Yeah. And who we put together uh, to ensure that it was an efficient way of getting there. And uh, people got through it. And so for me, my observation is just watching how we had a crisis situation and how the team just managed together and at that point i thought god this is an impressive team and if we can manage through this and this is me pontificating about it several years later right not in the moment you're just in the moment you're just trying to solve problems but later i just thought i I just had this opportunity to get influenced by some great leaders that just came together as one and got through a situation i thought anything we're going to run into uh in our 
industry later on, that's going to be nothing compared to this. And as you watch everyone's career from that team, everyone's just flourished and they've gone on to do bigger and better things. And I just had an opportunity to start off my career being a part of that team. Yeah, that was a special team. And you're right. That was one of your two stories where we really intersected because most of that management team you were with in Boston was part of the team I was on with Sheldon, maybe just a couple of years before. And we still fondly look back on that experience. In fact, very thankfully, one of the members of that team, John Hawaii, about two years ago, I want to say organized a Zoom call while we we're all stuck behind our, our uh, we were all locked in for COVID, stuck behind our laptops. And he decided to get the gang together to kind of fetch Sheldon. Like we used it as an excuse to get together kind of roast them on a Zoom call. And I, I guess I was the only one on that call that knew that Sheldon was pretty ill, but I decided not to tell anybody because I just wanted to let this flow. And I have to tell you, it was such a powerful, I wish I'd recorded it. It was so powerful, a couple hours, just the depth of stories, the, I, I don't know any other word to describe, but the love within that group for each other and for Sheldon as a leader and, knowing what he was up against. And then we lost him a few months ago. I know that that meant a lot to him. And then his daughter said that to me um, when we were together in the funeral area. And uh, it, it made a big impact. But yeah, it's just looking back at that time and the way you guys managed that situation and the strength of those bonds that were in that group. I concur 100% that that was a special group. And I think we all learned a lot from each other, not just Sheldon, but from each other as he went through I, challenges like that and other things that we were, we were up against. But so, now, so, so Rob, that was, yeah. that was, that was the, the one item around just pure leadership, decision-making, solving problems, working part of that group. Yeah. Um, the other watershed moment was, and I mentioned I was moving to California to, uh -huh. to follow this this person I met, right, um, that became my wife. But in doing that, I took a job uh, leading the main product we had at the time in marketing. And that marketing role, that was a watershed moment because at, at Allergan, and I've noticed this as I moved on to other organizations, that it's, going, you know, um, holding the marketing role and leading a major brand there is uh junior general management and development oh, and I'm other so organizations I, I just told that exact thing to a young marketing person today at an industry event she was asking me about what we saw in our travels within life science in addition to other industries and i said the one thing that i we see such a variation on is what product management looks like from company to company and at the one extreme of that i was so fortunate like you to work for an organization that gave ownership of the brand to the product managers and said, this is your P&L. This is your brand. You're not just a promotions manager. You're responsible for how profitable and valuable this brand is at the end of the year. And we're going to hold you accountable to that. So it, it, boy, it sure made a steep learning curve. I'm sure you felt the same way when you went to California and I felt that way too, but what a learning curve, Like it, it was a really unique and powerful environment. Did you have that same experience? Absolutely. And again, this is a, another example of me not knowing any different. I'm just going in there, working my tail off, doing the job, loving it. 
uh, absorbing everything I can. There was a lot of marketers uh, that were, uh, are you know brilliant in my mind that I was around. And I watch where they're at in their careers. And again, I could absorb a lot from them. Um, and what really uh, galvanized it for me is I took a medical marketing course at the Anderson School of Business at UCLA. And I won't say the name of the company, but it's a large biotech uh, West Coast uh, company. They also had members in that class. And at that time, the brand I was running might have been, I don't know, just $100 million at that point. And there was another product from this company. It might have been 100, a little bit more than 100 million at that point. And there was about nine people there, all from that organization. And so over lunch, we were having a discussion about what channel of the brand they managed. And it said, like, so who's responsible for your promotion? And there's these three people that introduced themselves as they handled promotion. They asked me who handled promotion, and it was me. Um, then there was another three people that um, responded to my question of who's running your PR. And uh, it was those three people. And when they asked who's running PR for me, it was me. And then they asked who's running Stratcom, right? And same things. So you get the pattern, right? And so I learned that there was about nine people on the same size brand over at this other company to myself and some agency support and a, another person. Right. So um, it just showed you that we were very flat. You learned a lot. You did a lot. Right. Where other larger organizations at that point, you'd have to spend several years touching all those segments of marketing and product management. And so you really learned how to be a junior manager uh, as you would uh, spend some time there in marketing. So that was a watershed moment that I think was a nice uh, catalyst to move on to other things. For sure. Okay. So in our last few minutes together i'm going to give you a guest choice of two topics you can pick whichever one you want and you can just go with what feels good to you you can talk about and i know these are so divergent you're going to laugh at me but you know me i'm a little quirky you can either talk about one of the funniest things that happened in your work life that you still laugh about or you could talk about which is again way on the other side of the ledger but how has your spiritual life intersected with your business life? Um, let's see. Maybe we could spend a little bit of time on both of them, but probably not. And <laughs> That's okay. The reason, the reason and, and I'll be a little, uh, the first one, I'll talk about the funniest story, but not really. I, I don't think I can really share on the podcast the funniest <laughs> stories because there might be a lot no, of things that are just. The FBI uh, might knock on your door, Todd. We don't we want that. Yeah, but but I, I I'll respond to it just uh, holistically that um, you know we we just had a lot of fun and I still have a lot of fun in work. Um, I have a quote on my desk that I'll read to you that when I talk about fun at work, I kind of blend the two, and I think I just don't see a difference between the two. Uh, you you mentioned the corporate athlete a little bit earlier, you know, and as you go through that course, they try to talk about balance between work and life, but they state not to try to get to a 50-50 because that's not going to happen. It's when you're 100% at work, you're 100%. And when you're at home, it's 100%. And so there might be a month of my time where I'm only home 10% of the time, but I got to make sure that that 10% is 100%. Um, at home. And so I kind of blend work and fun. So here's what I have sitting on my desk right here is a master in the art of living draws no sharp distinction between his work and his play. 
his labor and his leisure, his mind and his body, his education and his recreation. He hardly knows which is which. He simply pursues his vision of excellence through whatever he is doing and leaves others to determine whether he is working or playing. To himself, he always seems to be doing both. And I don't know the author of that. It's author on. Well, that's beautiful. But that's I saw that young early in my career, and I thought, man, that's that that's that's how I think I'm wired, and so I keep it with me. So therefore, there's there's a lot of funny stories, but I, I won't uh, get into anything that we probably don't want to share on the podcast now. <laughs> and 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 spiritually, I, I I'll keep that simple as well. I just have a strong sense of faith. Um, I just think of how my life started, um, my like married life and how that started and my kids and how that all came about. And, um, I just think life is difficult and we go through a lot of challenge and change and being grounded in spirituality is, uh, just gives me that strength. Right. And you just don't worry about things because it's all going to work out. Um, and so that's, that's why I try to keep my North star that way. Well, can we play with that one a little bit? That's a pretty powerful phrase that you used at the end. Uh, faith allows you not to worry about. And man, do I see that so much in the work we do now. Uh, a lot of the folks that we support will depend on me because it's my part of the practice or in individual support coaching, as you know, Um and it's probably at any one time, 15 to 20 folks who are at different points in their careers. A lot of them are fairly senior, really diverse in their industry, role, gender, culture, all that stuff. But the one thing that I see as a very common thread is, for lack of a better word, how they deal with pressure and stress because they've signed up for heady responsibility. And like you just mentioned in your quote, they're the kind of people who have energy and enthusiasm in all part of life. They're not one-dimensional folks. They probably do a pretty good job of role modeling exactly that quote that you just shared with us. But having said that, I find a significant separation between the folks who have the ability to use the resource of their faith, whatever that faith system is, whether it's uh, an Abrahamic faith or another faith system, another philosophy. But if it's a part of how they live, it seems to make a big difference to their level of, I don't want to say happiness. That's too, it's not the right word. Fulfillment's probably the word. You know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I, if you look at the people that you and I knew in common in business, for instance, and look at them on that scale of fulfillment, not happiness. Because happiness is fickle, and it's it's sort of less about you and the way that you're moving through things, and more about the environment, the cards you've been dealt. You know, whether it's good luck or bad luck. Like a lot of that seems to be what I connect to the word happy. But fulfillment, why I admire it so much, and it's one of the things that stands out about you to me and other people that you know I've mentioned on this podcast, like Sheldon and others that we look back on and admire, I think that's one of the separators is the fulfillment that those people bring to their lives has, I think stems from their faith because whether something is difficult or easy, happy or sad, they have the 
foundation under their feet. They don't get too high with the highs or too low with the lows. They're that ability to be a little bit more even keel, I think comes from a sense of a broader sense of purpose, a deeper sense of purpose. And I, that's just an observation uh, on my part. Now it's a little bit of, it's become a bit more of an opinion. If you want to look at it that way, like I don't think it's a, a right way to live. And you and I've had this conversation at other times that we've found out about each other much later in life that we're both spiritual guys. I think we knew that about each other, but it kind of surprises us both how much it's defined us as human beings, especially as we got more mature. I think my faith has become richer and deeper, even though people who've known that about me would say that I never stopped wrestling with it. Like I'm one of these people who just can't accept it. Uh, I got to, I got to keep playing with it. I can't get my hands out of the dough, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I think that that's one of the things that to me, when I think about extraordinary people, you can call them leaders. Probably the most separating factor is the fulfillment that they bring to all parts of their life. And I think a big determining factor of fulfillment comes from people who have a faith system. And I'm I'm not saying that to pontificate. I'm not saying that to do anything other than share an observation. It's been the observation I've had in my own life. It's also the observation I have as I reflect on even our conversation this afternoon and the people that we learn to admire. I think that's a very important element. Are you, do you see it that way or does it not sit with you well, as I say that? I- it's tough for me to tell for others, but for me, that's helpful because as much as I say, hey, don't worry, right, and lean on your faith, um, you know, it still happens and you forget about it, right? And then you got to refocus and get over it, right? Yeah. Um, so because we're, we're human and it, like you said, when you have a high level position, there's a lot of people counting on you, you bear that on your shoulders. And if you just recognize you can't bear it alone, uh, then you, you you know, you lean on it, at least I do that. And so, um, you know, it, life gets stressful. So I think it's, it's very helpful in that regard. Absolutely. Well, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't give you the final say, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners that you think we haven't talked about well something to just add to what we were just talking about because you know we were talking about success right and things that have led to that and just as how we're wrapping up when the chips are down right then then you know is there a lot of worry and is there a lot of pain and stress and then there's a lot of you know unhealthy things that come out of too much stress and I learned this definition of success and I actually learned it in church and it was a combination of what you want to achieve plus who you are. And Mm. I took that to heart to the point where that was my mantra from stage a lot in a a past role. And when I left that uh, organization, um, the team gave me a nice little plaque that said success equals what you want to achieve plus who you are. And I look at that a lot because there could be some initiatives or something that you're engaged in. And let's say you didn't hit the goal, right? Um, But you learned a lot about who you are and what your team's like or how you can get better from that. 
So then you might want to scratch your head and say, well, was it a failure or was it a success? Because it's a combination of both. Of those. Yeah. And on the other side of the coin, too, you could have tremendous success and succeed at hitting some objective. But then you look back and you say, how did we do it? And if you compromised your principles, you compromised your values, you didn't live up to your standards to do it. I wouldn't call that a success either, since it's the right. combination of the two of them. I love that. And on that note, thank you, Todd, for being our guest this afternoon. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed this conversation. Hopefully our listeners will get as much out of it as, as I know I did. And I'm sure right. we'll be talking soon, but we really appreciate you covering us some time to help us celebrate our 20th anniversary here at Thrive. And uh, I look forward to catching up with you soon. Thank you, Rob, and congratulations to you on the 20th anniversary. And uh, due to a lot of um, your teaching, coaching, and influence, I will have to say myself and the team I work with are thriving. So thank you. <laughs> All right, Todd. That's excellent, man. All right. Enjoy the West Coast. All right, man. We'll talk to you soon.